Today is Friday, June the 23rd, 2023, and this is going to be episode 3327 of the Survival Podcast, and it is time for an Expert Council Q&A show of the week. Let me tell you what we're going to hear about today. Uh, In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we're going to talk about, well, Dr. Paul is going to talk about the fallacy of equal justice under the law and the bright shining light that just appeared on it called the Hunter Biden light. Dan McAdams will talk about Peter Hotez and how he was flat out wrong about literally everything related to COVID. This is the coward that uh, attacked uh, RFK for his appearance on Rogan, but won't debate him, and now has cover fire from every media outlet about how valid it is, or how how valorious it is that he would refuse to debate RFK, because, well, RFK is just like a Nazi and a Putin apologist, yeah. Um, Chris Rossini will talk about why it is time for the armchair warriors to retire before we end up at war with Russia and China. I realized when I read that, uh, is, is his piece of the segment, that you might take that to be like keyboard warrior, keyboard warrior. That's the idiot that's on Twitter going, I'll do this and I ain't going to do shit. No, armchair warriors are the politicians that do have the power to create war to order men into battle, to make decisions that lead to war. But they never have to fight them, they never have to bleed, and they never have to sacrifice. That's an armchair warrior. And, uh, yeah, the problem with retiring all the armchair warriors, I'll say in advance, is there's a whole shitload of them waiting to take over. They're never-ending cycle of politicians and bureaucrats that are up for war. Again, my analogy of the shark's tooth continues. Sharks have this massive mouth, and they have all these teeth, and they have these rows of teeth, and as teeth fall out, the next row just pops in. That's our system right now. So I'd love to get rid of some of these people. I don't know how much it'll help. Then have you ever heard of the Bonus Army? This is one of the darker days of American history. It occurred during the Great Depression. Some of the most notable military names you've ever heard from World War II, even though World War II wasn't here yet, participated in this. And it is, it is one of those moments in history that you should have learned about in American history. Like, I think we had a, a history course in high school that was like American history 1865 to present. Present at the time would have been somewhere around 85, 86, something like that. And I'd never heard about this. And this is something that if you actually want to paint a picture of what really ran on in America, it should have been included. And you'll learn about it from C.J. Kilmer today. Um, Doc Bones will talk about testosterone therapy and treatment options. Should you consider it? and What can it do and what can't it do? Sean Mills will talk about how to configure a bank of solar panels and understanding charge controller specs. I know a lot of people need a bunch of solar panels put them up on the roof. Well, how they get wired together, series parallel, etc. matters. And we'll talk about that type of configuration decision. How about using a tree bog system that processes manure to grow fodder trees. 
Is there any worries there that, you know, if you're feeding fodder to a rabbit or a goat that comes from a tree that's grown in a system like that, that it would send contamination onto the animal? Nick Ferguson will talk about that. And Jeff Lawton will talk about plants that are productive in swampy systems. I'll have a few additions to that. And I've been kicking around the idea of doing a show about using AI as a self-directed learning tool. And I was going to do a segment today on that, and I started thinking about it. I'm like, either I'm going to plow through it so so far that it's going to become like a mini-episode and ruin doing an episode in the future dedicated to it. Uh, or I'm going to be really, really, really brief on it and not do it justice. So I thought about this, and I decided I have the perfect primer for you. So if you hate AI or whatever, you're hiding under a rock, it, you, I think this, this, this segment will still be beneficial to you. Because it's going to be more about the psychology of, of learning, actual learning. And what I've realized over the years is there's only two real reasons people learn a thing. I'll tell you what they are and why most people learn for the first one, and why it will never be as powerful as learning for the second one. We'll do all of that and more in just a minute. Before we uh, bring Dr. Paul and his crew on, let me just uh, remind you guys that if you want to support this show, there's a great way to do it. It's called the Members Support Brigade, or MSB. It's a program I've been running since my first year in the podcast. I ran the show for about a year, and then I brought this this on board. I've got members that have been uh, with me for 14 years and have never canceled their membership. And there's a reason, and that's the membership pays for itself. Let me give you just a few examples of the discounts you get by signing up as an MSB member and how it puts the money right back in your pocket plus. Mile High Distilling. Just join the MSB. 10% off everything there. And I know that everybody's going to go out and buy moonshine stills and stuff like that. But if you're going to, that stuff's expensive. The work Mile High does is artwork. It's beautiful. That'll put a bunch of money back in your pocket just on one thing. Akira Botanicals has some amazing cannabis products. Big discount there, 20%. One order may put all the money back in your pocket. Start Nine Embassy Servers, 9% off. They're one of our really premium sponsors. Do do great stuff, and again, it's a, a, kind of a more expensive item, so it puts all or most of the money back for your first year at fifty bucks a year. ITS Tactical, my good buddy Brian in his gear shop, he does a discount for MSB. Butcher Box, ten dollars a box forever. It's one hundred twenty dollars a year on a fifty dollar membership. Um, the Berkey guy. High Mowing Organic Seeds, Self-Sufficient Life, Victory Seed Company, MT Knives, BulkAmmo.com, uh, Nodak Arms, JM Bullion, uh, Iron Edison Batteries, TN Tactical Supply, I mean, Mai Tai Coffee, um, Nicole Sauce with Holler Rose Coffee does a discount, um, Food Forest Farms Coffee has a discount, Fish Newer Fertilizer has a discount, Dr. Earth uh, fertilizers, probably the best organic fertilizer that's available in the country today. I have a direct agreement with them with a discount for my members. You're starting to see how this adds up. If you do homesteading, permaculture, prepping, and you just look at this list of things in the benefits section, whenever you're going to buy anything, and say, I, I, I'm going to deal with this company that supports the show I listen to and get the discount, there's no way you wouldn't get your, your money back annually. I hear from people all the time, they make three, four hundred, five hundred dollars $500 a year in profit by religiously using the discounts that I negotiate. And I keep adding more. Usually I take this segment to kind of push a sponsor, or this time to, you know, of the show to push a sponsor or something. But I realize I don't really push the membership as hard as I did in the beginning uh, because things kind of take care of themselves at this point. There's a lot of new people. 
becoming a member will make sure this show is here for another 15 years. With that, let's go ahead and drop on into Ron Paul Liberty highlights of the week. We're going to hear about, in order, equal, the fallacy of equal justice under the law in the United States today. Um, Dr. Hota is getting everything wrong about COVID and the risk that armchair warriors play, uh, pl uh, have for the safety and security of the future of mankind. But this is poli how Politico is phrasing it today. Hunter Biden reaches plea deal with feds to resolve tax issues, gun charge. Just made a little plea deal, no big deal. Um, uh, Zero Hedge wrote it up. We can look at the next one. This is basically the meat of what's going on here. Hunter, 53, is now expected to plead guilty of two misdemeanor tax charges of failure to pay 2017 and 2018 combined tax liability of roughly 1.2 million. He'll also admit to illegally possessing a weapon after his 2018 purchase of a handgun, which will likely result in a diversion program, which would result in the removal of the gun charge if the program's conditions are met. In total, he'll likely receive two years probation for diversion conditions. Now, you mentioned Trump in your opening statement. It really is hard, and maybe we're biased. I don't know. I don't think we are. It's hard to look at what Trump faces. 400 years in prison for a few documents to Biden for these things, as we know, the tip of the iceberg, uh, facing just literally a slap on the wrist. It's not equal justice. That's, that's one thing for sure. And I, I think this whole thing that, uh, that uh, he, he's being treated like everybody else, mm. it's, it's nothing more. And I think, I think the Republican, even independent people who are looking for the truth, well, the truth, I think, the major part of the truth that people want to know about has just been buried. Yeah, it really is hard to believe that he's being treated like the average Joe on this, you know, <laughs> yeah. when you look at what he had. You know, we talked about Hotez a lot during COVID because <clears throat> he had Greg Abbott's ear, our own governor, and I think he influenced Abbott to shut the state down and do all kinds of stupid things. He had his ear. He was the most hysterical. He made Fauci look like a calm person. <laughs> the most hysterical, pro-mask, pro-vax, pro-isolation, pro-lockdown, everything. My guess is one reason he doesn't want to debate RFK Jr. is that Hotez has a long, long record of being just flat out wrong, laughably wrong about everything related to COVID. And here's a short clip that someone put together. It's really interesting about the conservative sites is because you really don't know what they're thinking until you know, until you've talked to people. And for them, you know, one of the big issues has been they create this straw man. The straw man is around vaccine mandates. They're obsessed that people are just going to, again, this comes out of this health freedom, medical freedom nonsense that uh, accelerated in 2015. They're convinced that, you know, the, either the U.S. government or the National Guard or soldiers in blue helmeted UN helmets are going to hold everybody down and vaccinate them and so there's this obsession with mandates and I say look right now no one's talking about mandates these vaccines will stop asymptomatic transmission protection is not long lasting with natural infection a lot of the time it was more with the original SARS back in 2003 but not as much well, with, with this one, for reasons that we don't understand, so vaccine immunity is probably going to be uh, better and more durable. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that most people, I think 
vaccine acceptance is going to increase as people see the benefits of getting it. Here early on, he claimed these conservatives are interested in this medical freedom garbage. Yeah. That says pretty much everything you need to say about it. You know, unfortunately, there are there's never a shortage of armchair warriors, uh, especially in this country. Uh, whether it be, you know, against Russia on one side, and there's people that, oh, no, no, to get, you know, stop the war with Russia, but they want war with China. I'd like, like, that's, uh, that's a, uh, you know, a good thing. We do not want war with Russia or with China. They both have nuclear weapons. We would be physically in danger in both cases. And in China, especially, the disruption would be unbelievable because we are so dependent on them. If they were to just cut that off, our lives would be disrupted to a, a degree that we, don't, we can't even imagine. Uh, it, but we're so used to in this country, yeah, you, you and him, you go fight. I'm going to go to the beach. You know, wars are out there somewhere. And, and it's a shame because that's not how war is. War is a serious thing. And we do not want to be involved in it. And on top of it, our government would clobber us here. Forget about fighting against Russia and China. They would go after us like they did during COVID. They would restrict and restrict and mandate and mandate, just like in COVID, you know, because we're at war. You know, they, they, nothing is off limits. So we don't want to go through any of this if we want to live good lives. Now, if we want to suffer, then this is the way to go. But we should avoid war with Russia, China, and everybody else and really worry about making our country, you know, even resemble what it used to resemble in the past. Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, the Hotez thing, he just happens to be the one at the moment that people with a brain are focused on. Uh, none of these people were right about anything. They said Fauci, Bricks, Hotez, any of these people, none of them got anything. Uh, what's her name? Walensky from the CDC. None of them got one thing right about COVID, yet they get to keep talking. They keep being protected by the media. And the only thing you can learn from this is you can't trust the media. You can't trust the government at all, ever, never, infinity, done. And you're, you know this idea, I keep seeing it in social media. Justice, justice, there has to be accountability. We're going to do this. You're not going to do anything. You can post all the shit you want. You can make all the memes you want. And I love memes. You're not going to change this until the average idiot gets to a point where they have, they're forced to wake up to the boot on their neck. You're not. These people will get away with everything, including Hunter. Hunter will never. You're going to hear Republicans campaigning on accountability for the Bidens. They won't do anything. Please build your own life. It is the only solution you have. The only reason we even look at this stuff is to understand it. You're not going to change it. You're not going to hold them accountable. You're not going to get justice. Hunter Biden's not going in an arms jumpsuit. Neither is Biden along with his adult diapers. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I know you're going to hate the next thing I'm going to say. There's a very good chance the idiots in this country are going to reelect the geriatric patient in the White House right now next year. There's a very good chance he will be president. Well, he will be elected to another four years. Whether or not he'll complete it is a totally different thing. It's a totally different question. But there's a very good chance. I would say the chances are better than 50-50, even though his approval rating's in the 30s. Because Congress continuously has their approval ratings in the 20s and 30s, and 90% of those assholes keep getting reelected. 
Because my party system, you know, it is what it is. Now, the armchair warrior shit, this is a little bit bigger of a thing to concern yourself with. I think Chris hit it perfectly. Not so much Russia, but China. China could completely decimate the economy and state of the United States without firing a shot. Without firing a shot. China could take all their ships cruising around the South China Sea and put them in port. Completely change their military posture and just say, no shit for you. And just stop shipping us stuff. And the other thing they could do, start dumping all the U.S. bonds that they're holding and stop buying new ones. That would shit can our economy and our supply system like you can't even imagine. It would make what happened at the beginning of the COVID look like a joke. But yet, let's keep poking that without fixing it. I'm all for, for basically jettisoning that shit and jettisoning that dependence relationship, spreading out our imports across many partners instead of one ginormous one and doing more here at home. But we're not doing that. It's the same shit I hear well, we need to get rid of this green energy shit and build nuclear plants. But we're not doing that. We're not putting enough green in. We're not putting enough nuclear in. We're not putting enough old school in to power the cars that we're building to run on electricity. The whole thing is a catastrophe clusterfuck. People have compared the United States to Rome and the Roman Empire and its decline for so long it's become cliche, but now it actually looks like Rome. See, it didn't. You could see it coming, but it didn't. When war is nothing but a thing over there, right? That's the, that's the front with the Gauls in the distance. And who is one of the most hated emperors of all time from Rome? Still to this day. Been dead for thousands of years. Well, a thousand and some years. Hundreds of years, right? A thousand plus hundreds. Commodus. Commodus. You know what Commodus' great crime was? He ended the wars. He also was somewhat incompetent, but overall, his biggest crime was he ended the wars. He ended the wars on the front and went back to Rome and then promised the soldiers that they would be rewarded for their service. The, the Senate took the credit for it and destroyed Commodus over... Well, I should have CJ talk about this sometime, but it ain't, it ain't what the movie said happened happened. That's for sure. Politicians that end wars have always been hated. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Because some people profit from war. Some people profit from disease and illness. Things that are profitable, that are, you know, quote-unquote problems, seem to never get solved. That's why you better solve problems in your own life. With that, let's go ahead and hear about another little bit of history here. Something called the Bonus Army. Professor C.J. Kilmer. Hey, this is CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast, and at the suggestion of the head honcho, the big kahuna himself, namely Jack, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Bonus Army, an episode in American history that happened back during some of the darkest days of the Great Depression in 1932. So the Bonus Army were a group of a bit over 40,000 demonstrators who began gathering in Washington, D.C., beginning in May of 1932. And a little under half of those present were themselves World War I veterans. And just as a side note, keep in mind, the vast majority of the Americans who served in World War I were conscripts. They were draftees. Now, the remainder of the demonstrators who showed up in D.C. in the middle of 1932 were veterans' families, 
including women and children, as well as various other supporters, activists, things like that. And they wanted to get early access to their so-called veterans bonuses. Now, these veterans bonuses were a thing that the government had promised them, kind of like a combination of a bond and a pension. An amount of money based on how long they had served in World War I. However, it was not supposed to be redeemable until 1945. But these disgruntled veterans and their families and supporters wanted to get access to that money early because their argument was basically, hey, we're suffering through the Depression now. We're losing our homes and farms and businesses now. So I don't need the money in 1945. I need it now. And the government was resisting any serious effort to get them early access to those funds. So they started gathering in and around D.C. beginning in May of 1932. And many of the demonstrators began living in a shantytown that they set up just outside D.C., which came to be known as Bonus City. Now, Herbert Hoover, who was then still the president of the United States, became worried about the possibility of a violent revolution. And he and his attorney general decided in July to just clear them all out. And on July 28th, the attorney general ordered them to leave. And initially, just D.C. police were sent in to deal with it. But they encountered violent resistance, and people started to get hurt, and a few even ended up dying. And there was even some shooting, and Hoover decided to send in the army. General Douglas MacArthur was then the Army's chief of staff, and he decided to get personally involved in sending in infantry, horse cavalry, and even a few tanks to drive out the protesters and destroy their shantytown. Other famous American military officers were involved as well. For example, George Patton was then a major, and he was in command, I believe, of the cavalry contingent. And Dwight Eisenhower, who was also a major at the time, was one of MacArthur's aides. And Eisenhower was against using brute force against U.S. military veterans, and he privately urged MacArthur to not get involved and to not use overwhelming force. But then after the fact, after everything went down, Eisenhower ultimately was a good soldier and wrote the report, the official military report on the events that basically supported what MacArthur did. And there was a lot of violence and destruction. Many people, I think we still don't have exact numbers, were wounded to various degrees. These people's shantytown was destroyed. Many uh, other, you know, possessions and property were destroyed. And it was just a violent, chaotic mess. And just imagine, as we would say today, the optics of currently serving U.S. military personnel using brute force, including even tanks, to forcibly evict protesters who were themselves veterans of the last big war. Supposedly, Hoover had not wanted the force to escalate to this degree, and MacArthur had at least somewhat kind of exceeded Hoover's intentions. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's the president, so the buck stops with him, and the public is, of course, going to ultimately blame the violent, chaotic mess on the sitting president at the time, and at least to some degree rightfully so. Keep in mind, of course, that 1932 was an election year, and Herbert Hoover was already at a huge disadvantage just because the Depression had been grinding on for three years at that point. And supposedly, the Democratic challenger to Hoover, of course, FDR, when he heard what went down with the Bonus Army and the chaotic force and violence, he said something along the lines of, well, this seals the deal, I'm going to be elected. 
And of course, he was right. And it wasn't the only factor, but it certainly helped FDR to win a landslide election in November. By the way, the GI Bill, which I think the official name of it was something like the Servicemen's Readjustment Act that was passed, the original version of it during World War II, was in part an effort to prevent this type of situation from occurring again, to make sure that veterans got some significant benefits even immediately after completing their military service, you know, not just to be nice and generous, but also to try and prevent this situation of extremely disgruntled veterans massing together and protesting the government and possibly, you know, in a future scenario, even actually threatening some sort of violent revolution. And these sorts of things are quite common in the aftermath of big wars, when you have a lot of veterans coming home with all sorts of injuries and trauma and facing all sorts of economic hardships and difficulties readjusting to peacetime civilian life. And a very early example of this, which I covered on my podcast a long time ago, is what's known as Shays Rebellion that happened in the immediate aftermath of the American War of Independence. And the Bonus Army fiasco is an important example and warning of volatile situations that can occur very quickly during bad and turbulent economic times, and perhaps even more so these days in what I at least believe is an era of American imperial decline, which the Depression was a terrible economic time, but I don't think that the United States was in imperial decline at the time. And keep in mind, too, that these days there are lots of veterans in the United States who are, for various reasons, often quite justifiably, disgruntled and dissatisfied with things. And these are veterans of the recent wars in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, and they have all sorts of different kinds of grievances. And so it's at least possible that some sort of scenario with disgruntled veterans massing together could happen. And I would also say, look at the establishment narrative of 1-6, not what actually happened, but the way the establishment portrayed it, and then also look at the way that D.C. has been fortified ever since January 6th of 2021 to see that the establishment is genuinely concerned about anything resembling this happening in our relatively near future. And as always, if you want to hear all kinds of cool history topics covered by somebody who has been studying and teaching this stuff for decades and who is not a propagandist for the establishment, Check out the Dangerous History Podcast wherever you like to consume your audio podcasts. You know, I mentioned uh, Rome leading up to that segment and Commodus and bringing the soldiers home. And what they were given was land. And that was very common. And that's what the Senate took credit for, even though it was from Commodus. In this instance, the soldiers were promised something eventually. And eventually as a way of becoming never. And these guys were really down and out and hard on their luck. And then, you know, World War II, we implemented the GI Bill and some other things. But there is a long history. It predates Rome, and it, it, it bridges all the way forward. Then often soldiers coming home from wars are offered something. And you would think, well, that's the right thing to do or whatever. But does the government do things because it's the right thing to do? Is that, is that, does, does history indicate that? I'll tell you what it is. Governments love to raise armies and go fuck shit up with it. They love to do that. You know what they don't want is that army coming home and going, hey, what about us? 
and, and turning on the government itself. Be, and, and why does government fear soldiers, their own soldiers? Because of how they're treated. Because of how they're used. Because of how they're abused. Because governments, in the words of Henry Kissinger, who served as Secretary of State and later wrote the following words, the, these people are viewed as dumb, stupid animals in service to the state. They really believe that. So if you have a bunch of dumb, stupid animals that you've trained to you know, invade things, use weapons, work together, uh, come up with tactics and strategy to overtake an enemy, it's kind of a thing to be a little bit afraid of. So what governments have traditionally done is given these men something. But in this case, the government gave them a promise of something. And when they were really down on their luck, and they had no place to be, they had lost their homes, they had lost everything, and they said, you know, how about you give us what you promised us? The response was, how about we crack your skulls and clear the streets? Nothing really changes until people change. And I can see this exact thing happening today. They've just gotten more sophisticated in preventing it. They haven't fixed the problem. And the problem is that when we send men off to war, we take the best years of their lives. We destroy whatever innocence remained in them. We permanently alter them forever. And we do it with no real concern for their well-being. There are times when war is the only choice. But when was the last time the United States fought such a war? Most of you were not born. I'd say 99% of you weren't born. I certainly wasn't. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead on to our next one. This one on testosterone. There's a lot of talk about testosterone uh, therapy, and I think it helps some people. I know one person in particular it has done dramatic help for, uh, but I'm going to let Bones talk about this, and I'm going to come back and tell you why it's not always from the angle that you're hearing about it today. We have a problem with this, and there are reasons beyond I'm getting older. With that, Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Chris, who writes, Question for Doc Bones. What are your thoughts on testosterone therapy? I'm a 48-year-old man who at times feels sluggish and tired. I'm physically active. I'm a commercial electrician. My diet's decent, but could be better. A friend of mine is considering this treatment as am I. What's your opinion on this? Thanks in advance, Chris. Chris, testosterone therapy is being offered more and more to men as they age, and some believe it's a major anti-aging cure-all. Now, there are definitely some benefits, but it's important to know that the jury's still out, as some of the data isn't that clear. Now, what can the treatment do and not do for you? I guess I should start out by telling people what testosterone is. In men, testosterone is a hormone produced primarily in the, surprise, surprise, testicles. Testosterone is useful in maintaining quite a few aspects of being a man, such as bone density, fat distribution, muscle strength and mass, facial and body hair, red blood cell production, and sperm production, and in both sexes, sex drive. Chris, you haven't mentioned if your testosterone level has been measured. What happens to testosterone levels in men as they age? Testosterone levels generally peak during adolescence and early adulthood. As you age, your testosterone level drops about 1% a year as you progress through your late 30s and 40s and above. For older men, it's important to determine if a low testosterone level is due to normal aging or if it's due to a disease called hypogonadism. 
hypogonadism hampers the ability to produce normal amounts of testosterone. In these cases, testosterone replacement in the form of injections, pellets under the skin, patches, gels, things like that, can improve the signs and symptoms of the low testosterone in these men. So it's worth checking a testosterone level. But let's say your testosterone is declining naturally as you age and you're a healthy person otherwise. In this case, does a naturally decreasing testosterone level cause the signs and symptoms of aging? Not necessarily, but, but low levels can cause certain physical changes. These include increased body fat, reduced muscle bulk and strength, decreased bone density, breast tissue may become noticeable, body hair loss may occur, you might have less energy than you used to, so those are some physical changes that can occur. There are sexual changes too. This may include reduced sexual desire, fewer spontaneous erections, and lower sperm counts. There are emotional changes as well that have been attributed to low testosterone. Some people feel depressed, have trouble concentrating, or complain of a decrease in drive or self-confidence. So now you know about the possible effects of low testosterone. This makes you think that testosterone therapy might make sense to avoid these effects. But if you don't have low testosterone levels, can testosterone therapy increase a man's vitality? Well, if you have hypogonadism, yes, but it's not certain whether testosterone therapy would benefit older men who are otherwise healthy. Some men believe they feel younger and more vigorous on testosterone and indeed, there may be evidence that sexual function might improve, but in an otherwise healthy man, there's little scientific data that suggests a major difference in vitality and energy. Are there any risks to testosterone therapy? That's important. Is it worth a shot? Well, you should know the possible risks. They include acne and other skin changes, causing an enlarged prostate. Now, it doesn't cause prostate cancer, but if you already have it, well, it could make it worse. It can, surprisingly, increase the size of breast tissue and limiting sperm production, this despite the fact that you are actually on testosterone therapy. There are some other possible risks that are put out there, but, but honestly, more research is needed to prove that there's a problem with testosterone therapy in terms of blood clotting issues and heart disease. So Chris, in normal times, I'd have a testosterone level done and talk with your healthcare provider about the results and your symptoms. I want you to know that you probably expect to have the test repeated twice before they give you a diagnosis officially of low testosterone as results can fluctuate. The bottom line is that conventional medicine doesn't really recommend treating normal aging with testosterone. Non-pharmaceutical ways to increase testosterone, such as losing fat and increasing muscle mass through resistance exercise, might be better. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning 4th edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So on, on the medical stuff, I'll just leave that to Bones. I, I don't even think about debating Bones when it comes to medicine and whether or not it'd work. And, and who. But I think that there's a bigger problem here. So if we look at testosterone levels in 1960, the median average across all men, all age groups, um, the, the, uh, the amount of testosterone measurable was about 700 nanograms per deciliter. Just, just if that doesn't like, you're like, what the hell does that mean? Just say it was 700. That's all you got to know. In 1960, when we adjusted across all age groups for men, once they had gone through puberty all the way up until they went in the box, 
the, the median average testosterone measurement we could get was 700. Today, it's 400. It's actually lower than 400. And the, the moving average is a steady, consistent decline down over 60, 70 years. We have lower reproductive rates today than, than America has ever had in history, including at a time when a lot of Americans were malnourished. They still had higher testosterone levels and higher uh, estrogen levels in women and more reproduction. And when I talk about reproduction right here, I'm not talking about just the overall, because there's a lot of people abstaining from having children. I'm talking about sexually active people not using contraception and the number of babies they produce. That's in decline as well. There's a problem here that Americans don't want to look at, and it is hormonal, and it's not just testosterone. And this is the most important thing, I think, to take away from this, is diet does affect hormones. And the diet that most people are eating today, which is high in sugar, affects your hormone levels. And the hormone, the, 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 uh, the, the endocrine system, which is the the full macro body system that regulates hormones is not isolated the way that we are led to believe see everything that we're led to believe today is every single thing that happens to you is isolated to one part of your body if your testosterone levels low we'll just take testosterone how many people do you think how many men do you think have low testosterone levels that have elevated insulin levels a lot of them not all of them but a lot of them now you get out, you see what I'm saying? Because if you mess around with the hormones, the hormone production in the endocrine system, these are all interconnected. They're all regulated by the body as a system. There's a there's a, a, a there is a hormone and a counter hormone for almost ev- not all but almost everything. Men do have some estrogen. It is a counter hormone to testosterone. They shouldn't have too much, but they need a little bit. Just like women have a little bit of testosterone, it's part of the balancing equation. If something gets too high, we put a little bit of this in and pull it down. Uh, glucagon and insulin is the same thing. Glucagon is, is the counter hormone to insulin. So when we have a nation with, with a predominant rise in what we call metabolic syndrome, which is basically your endocrine system is jacked up, you're going to have declining testosterone levels. And the number one thing we can do to fix all of this is diet. And I'll tell you again, we go back 1960, average person 700, average person today below 400. And historically, this makes no sense. I'll, I'll give you one more little fact and we'll go on to the next one. It's going to be Sean Mills talking about solar. All right, so... This is something I only know because of my studies in permaculture and because I listen to literally everything that Bill Mollison ever said that I can find. But there are a lot of indigenous societies where young men were not allowed to have children. Young men. What was an old man? 50. 50 and up. And this was their reasoning. That if we... They looked at it more like we look at breeding livestock. But they looked at it collectively for the good of the tribe, the village, etc., and what they decided was, if a guy makes it to 50 without killing himself, he's not an idiot. He's probably got some wisdom. He's probably amassed whatever form of wealth that society has. He can take care of his kids. And a lot of young men are stupid and do dumb things, and they hurt themselves, and they behave like idiots. 
So we don't need them reproducing into the point where they've proven themselves. And a lot of them, you know, in a, in a society that works the way those societies work, where stupid people are allowed to be stupid as long as they don't hurt anybody else, they don't make it. So there's a lot less men by the time they reach that age, so they take more than one wife. Now, you don't have to agree with that, and I don't. I don't think that's a way to run a society. But what it tells you is that men over the age of 50 in all of these societies, and there were many of them, had no problem cranking out kids. And they weren't ordering Viagra, generic Viagra, off the Internet from 4Hems or whatever they're advertising on the TV today. Just historically, this has not been a problem for men, and it is today. And the main thing that's changed is what we eat. You talk about soy boys and feminization and all that. Hormones are hormones. You, you're not going to change hormones in a person's body by showing them a can of Bud Light with a transsexual on it, though you may uh, disrupt the urge to do anything, but you're not going to change their hormone levels. You want to change hormone levels? Control diet and exercise and activity level. And so I'm not saying that somebody that's got a declined testosterone level can't benefit from it because I know they can. But you also have to ask, if it's not an underlying physical detriment, something that's actually wrong, if it is conditional, wouldn't it be better to correct the conditions? Even if you're going to do the therapy, wouldn't you still be better off correcting the conditions as well? With that, let's hear from Sean Mills about setting up a solar array and managing charge controllers and making decisions on, on things like that. Hey guys, it's Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com and today I've got a question from MeWe and the question is, uh, I would, would I get any benefit from running 3 by 48 volt panels that are 175 watt each in series and making 3 banks of them and joining the 3 banks in parallel so I would have 144 volts at 525 watts going into my charge controller. My battery banks are only 12 volt and so is my inverter. My MPPT controller will handle up to 150 volts and 60 amps. I have nine of these 48 volt panels that produce 175 watts each. What would be the best configuration? Well, the easy answer to your question is the one you described would be the best, three by three. But let me uh, dig into the details on that a little bit. So you didn't actually provide the model of the charge controller, so I'll use the Victron 150-100 as a model for the specs. It's important to understand that manufacturers try to mislead you a little bit when they're branding their components. Uh, for example, if you didn't know better, you would look at a charge controller that's rated for 150 volts and 100 amps and think, Wow, can I really connect 15,000 watts to that bad boy? Uh, this is not the case. The voltage rating of 150 is the maximum the unit can take, so you would need to reduce that by considering the minimum operating temperature and the temperature coefficient of the panels. The reason for this is that when the panels are cold, the voltage increases. So you need to make sure that the maximum voltage for those panels in your area are not going to combine to put out more than 150 volts, or you could fry your charge controller. Honestly, most of your charge controllers can take a little bit more than their rated levels, and some charge controllers do have built-in over-voltage protection, uh, so you might decide to test those limits. However, putting 144 volts 
open current on a 150 volt charge controller nearly guarantees that you will have over voltage on cold mornings. And so if you think about your panels getting cold throughout the night, over a cold night, and in the morning when the sun breaches the trees or the hills or whatever uh, and hits those panels, that's where you could have the potential over voltage. So as a matter of fact, on the Cadillac Victron model that I mentioned, uh, the maximum input amperage is actually 70 amps. However, even that doesn't tell the whole story because you have to consider the output characteristics. So on a 12-volt battery, the maximum charging voltage is 14.85 volts. So 14.85 volts times the 100-amp maximum output is 1,485 watts max. Now on a 48-volt battery, uh, that can go up to 5,800 watts. Okay, so... Um, the, the battery bank that you're charging does have an impact on how many solar panels you can attach to these charge controllers. So now that we know that 1485 watts is the max, um, what can, you know, that's the maximum output. Uh, what can we put on that and how much more can we put on that without being wasteful? So luckily for you, you've got 1575 watts worth of panels. So this is actually a pretty good match. If your panels have a VOC rating of 48 volts, which I'm assuming because you just said, you know, they're 48 volts each and they're 175 watts, then you have a nominal amperage rating of about 3.65 amps, which means that your short circuit voltage is likely under 5 amps. So in your proposed configuration, you would have 144 volts open current or VOC and 15 amps short circuit current, um, which is ISC. I'm sorry, I, I, I said uh, open current, I believe. Um, uh, open circuit voltage, so no load, would be 144, and short circuit uh, amperage would be one fi or 15. So both of those are within the tolerance of that charge controller with the one caveat of the cold temperature voltage. The cool thing about these Victron charge controllers is that they have an on-off relay built in, so you could actually put a meter on the input and switch the controller off if the VOC was over 150 volts and then back on once it drops below. Um, as soon as the actual charge function begins, the voltage will drop. It's just that early cold morning spike that you may have to contend with. So to wrap up, the answer to your question is yes, your proposed 3x3 configuration will work perfectly fine for this. Uh, now you just have the one input, so you, need, you will need to combine those three strings into one uh, line to actually run into the charge controller, but in terms of um, matching up the capability of the panels with the capability of the charge controller, you're good to go there. So the last thing to consider is that the amount of amperage. So again, this thing is rated to output 100 amps on um, the charging side. Well, that's too much for one battery. So you didn't mention how many batteries that you have. Uh, you want to kind of take a look at what what chemistry style battery you're using there for those 12 volt batteries and make sure that 100 amps is not too much. Uh, now your charge controller will moderate that, um, but you got to be careful that you're not um, frying your battery by throwing too much uh, current in there and uh, potentially causing some problems. So that being said, uh, guys, the Kickstarter is still active. You can go search solar water pumping on Kickstarter um, or uh, Jack's got that linked a couple times on uh, the TSP website. Go check that out and uh, fund it. It is We are fully funded, so there's no risk now uh, that this product is not going to be put out. If you are interested in putting in a solar-powered DC well pump, 
um, or even a transfer pump or pumping from a spring up a hill or pumping from a tank out to your back 40 uh, for livestock. Uh, those are the type of things we're going to be talking about. We're going to teach you how to design those systems and how to select the pump based on actual measurable data versus just the manufacturer's pump curve. All right. Well, with that, keep getting the questions in. I'll keep getting them answered. Next up, let's let's hear from Nick Ferguson. I've actually never heard of a tree bog system as a means of dealing with manure or human waste even. I've heard of marsh-based systems and lagoon-based systems for doing this, but I I can just kind of envision that and like, well, let's take that and plant trees into the margins and we just make the whole thing better. And I've never really considered it, and I've never heard of it until now, but apparently it is a thing. But then the question becomes, what trees? And trees that would do really well in that type of wet system are things like willow, mulberry, and then toward more of the dry margins, poplar. And those are all great fodder trees, so they should grow incredibly well. But is it safe to do that and then feed the fodder to livestock? Nick Ferguson, take it away. Hey there, Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty here with an answer for Zach on fodder trees. And I want to give a quick heads up that I will have two days open for consulting in Michigan. I'm going to be at Mark Baker's Green Acres teaching a class on fodder trees and feed store independence. His farm is in Marion, Michigan. I'll be available Saturday the 8th and Sunday the 9th. If there's anybody around Cadillac, Grand Rapids, Lansing areas kind of heading towards the southeast, if you're interested in a once in a decade chance to get me on your land to help you design it or fix problems, because I'm never up there, shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com with consulting in the subject line and I'll see if I can fit you in. Again, those days are Sunday the 9th and Saturday the 8th of July. That's around Cadillac, Grand Rapids, Lansing areas. On to the question from Zach. Uh, And he writes, question for Jeff Lawton or Nick Ferguson, can I use tree bog trees for fodder? Absolutely, yes you can. I'm considering setting up a tree bog to deal with human or dog waste, primarily using willows, and wonder if it is safe to use those trees as fodder for animals I would later use for milk or meat. Would I need to feed a tree bog additional carbon like a humanure set up to make it safe or viable? My initial research does not indicate this, but it seems like it would be needed. Thank you for your expertise. Kind regards, Zach. That's a very interesting question, and honestly, it's one I've not considered very much before. I think I've thought about it a couple times, but I've not done a ton of research, so I'm shooting from the hip here with no real research, just the combined years of experience and knowing these trees and what they're capable of. And I tell you what, I'd say go for it. Willows can suck up a tremendous amount of nutrients and water. And my gut says you might need to add some wood chips or sawdust. Um, But honestly, I'd be really surprised if it's needed at all. Uh, As for the safety of the leaves and stems, as long as the harvested portions are above any splash zone from rainfall... You should have no diseases present within the tree tissues at all. Um, It'd not be much of a concern if I were doing it on my land. I'd honestly, I'd use hybrid willow as the primary species, 
but I bet all three of the fodder trees I sell would be fantastic choices. Just keep the white mulberry in a slightly drier location as they're not as tolerant of wet root zones as the other two are. Um, and I just ensure that the way you plant them is designed to allow for access without getting your footwear covered in, you know, water, contaminated soil. You don't want to be tracking fecal matter all over the place on accident. And uh, I lean towards a pollard at about waist height to maybe shoulder height to get the trees up off the ground and ensure anything you cut in the future would be above the splash zone. But other than that, honestly, I think it sounds like a great idea and a fantastic use of hardy trees to recycle high nitrogen waste and turn it into useful livestock feed. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. Just throwing out a plug for Nick, that part of the country he mentioned is one he almost never goes to. And so if you've been wanting to have someone come do consultation with you on permaculture, homesteading, etc., Nick is one of the best there is. And if you're in that area, you have an opportunity to get that done for a lot less because you're not talking about a trip charge on top of whatever the consult is because he's going to be in the area. So I would avail yourself of that. On the system itself, I would say I have no fear of this whatsoever in a properly designed system. So I think it's more about how the system itself is designed. And I'm also very much in league with Nick on managing the system as a pollard, not a coppice and something like that. Not just for the added level of safety, but I also think for the added level of ease of management, I have always been a fan of pollard over coppice. I would just rather cut at about my chest to shoulder height than down on the ground. It's just that simple. And the beauty is the tree doesn't really care where you do this. So anyway, I agree with Nick on this on all facets. But from a management standpoint, I don't care where it is. I would manage my coppices as pollards, right, if that's such a thing. Anyway, moving on. Let's have a very similar situation here. Jeff Lawton had a question this week on growing productive things in marshy, swampy woodlands. I'll let Jeff take it, and I'll have some additions on this one. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And um, I've got a question here about uh, property in Zone 6A. Um, and um, it's, it's a small area. It's a, a third of an acre, lightly forested, um, and it's swampy. Um, in the wetter time of year, it's quite a swamp, and then it doesn't dry out that much in the drier time of year. And um, they've been considering changing it, but now they're considering working with it and what's possible. What kind of plants can you use? Well, um, Sagittaria is an edible um, and a native, also called arrowhead. And then there are some um, plants like chufa um, and uh, camis lily. Um, they're all they're all used in that zone as edibles and um, it's possible to use edge side plants of course wild rice grows and you don't need much wild rice uh, to produce a family's um, grain for a year you just got to harvest it every day for 30 days because it comes ripe over that period so you can p- choose some good wild rice if you're talking about, they're also talking about making raised footpaths to go through there every every bit of soil you dig out makes uh, a deeper little pond in that swamp. Um, so the soil that you, you, you raise your footpaths with can be um, purposely directed towards making little deep 
ponds or deeper ponds than just swamp because you're intensifying the walkway, you're intensifying the land to become a walkway. By doing that, you're intensifying the water. Um, so you can make um, kind of aquatic little zones where things like wild rice and maybe even cranberry you might be able to try. And on the edge of the footpaths, you could definitely start moving into things like blueberries because they like that acidic condition. And it might not be the perfect blueberry zone, but it'd be enough to get quite a few blueberries. And also strawberries, which like, they originate in forest and they like acid conditions. So you're looking for plants that like acid conditions because it's a bit waterlogged. Um, but um, you need to come out of the water just to the edge of the footpath. So you might have a sort of swamp snack track, semi-aquatic productive zone, which uh, might be a very valuable use in that area. Now, something that I also want you to consider here is setting part of it up like that as a, uh, a duck forage, because ducks forage in those wetlands very well. Um, and you could uh, dig a little... Um, ring pond around uh, an island so in other words a, a kind of little canal around an island keep the ducks in the middle with a fox proof sort of moat um, or predator proof moat and then forage out with ducks uh, and maybe you could duck forage tractor the area because uh, a few ducks will just about feed themselves tidy this thing up uh, change the nutrient cycles so um some of those productive poultry systems you can you you can design and and install are, are swamp duck forages. Just needs a little bit of adjustment as you put it together, and you could cycle them through different zones, and um, you'd probably find there's quite a few more um, edible aquatics that you can include if you want to in- introduce some um, exotic species. You can definitely grow a lot of mulch plants in that zone um, because. Um, wetlands grow great mulch um, very fast in the summer and um, everything you use as aquatic wet mulch on dry land doesn't have any seed in it and often um, carries enormous amounts of water so it's a sort of a water soaking non-seedy mulch producing zone as well so look at the opportunities there's lots there okay so let me uh, hit on a few things that uh, that Jeff talked about here. Number one, uh, when he said Sagittaria, uh, Arrowhead is another name for it. This is also commonly known as duck potato. And even though they're called duck potato, ducks really don't eat them. Uh, but they are pretty damn delicious. They are a carbohydrate crop. Um, they're actually a fairly expensive crop. And there's two real forms, uh, Sagittaria latifolia, which is domestic for us here in the U.S. anyway, and they're a bit smaller, and they're a little bit easier to grow. And then there's Sagittaria trifolia, which is a Chinese arrowhead. It's actually a fairly sizable crop. It really likes to grow in, like, mottled shade or early shade, early sun, late shade. It doesn't like to be just beaten. It is an edge plant. And if you create these margins that Jeff was talking about, it would grow like get out i mean it would just grow beautifully for you and it might even be if you don't want it for yourself a great cash crop because it is a there's a 
a whole group of people uh, from from Asia, but specifically Chinese, but other Asian countries as well. This is actually a big deal, and they're eating around New Year's. So, and it's not an easy thing to come by in the United States. So that might actually be something really worth considering. I would also say, like Chinese water chestnut is one of the most productive crops. It is the most productive crop by weight by square foot in the world. And it would do fantastic in this situation. Groundnut, Aphius americana, is a very shallow-rooted uh, legume that, that is also a, a wonderful plant. And that would do good. Things like lotus is both American and Indian. Uh, watercress, you know, I, I'm jealous because I can't do it here. But in the right climate, you could make watercress go endemic. Nicole Sauce will never plant watercress in her life unless she moves because she has watercress for most of the year growing up and down the creek that runs through her property wild. So watercress would be another thing. There's a ton of stuff that you can look at. Aquatic mint uh, would be another one. There's a plant called uh, water catharop. Now these need to be cooked, but they're also known as water chestnut. Um... There's a lot of stuff that could be done here. I really like Jeff's idea with the ducks, though. Not just because I'm a duck aficionado and I love my ducks, but because animal-based systems, uh, in conjunction with natural systems that feed the animals, and the animals then provide a product for us, those are the most productive systems we've been able to develop as humans. So just some additional ideas there. And I love the idea of creating some high areas that are less wet, and at the same time, you're basically excavating small ponds. I would take some time to really think about that, interconnected swells and things like that, because you could make one of the most cool, productive systems, even if some of the stuff that you're creating is raised areas are just footpaths primarily with the margins planted so that you can move through this system. I'm kind of excited. I would like to design a system like this. I wish I owned one. Anyway, uh, that's just some additions that I had for you on the you know, aquatic emergent vegetation there's a lot of options there uh, that normally we just don't think of in america and again it looked toward asian agriculture for ideas in situations like this because to quote bill mollison i remember him one time he said if you give a chinaman a teacup he'll put a fish in it and he wasn't saying that to be insulting at all he was talking about how intelligent their designs in aquatic systems are all right, with that, let's talk about my segment today. Again, I was originally going to do something on AI, and I will refer to AI just briefly in this one, but here's what I want you to do for me today. If you think AI is the devil, it's a demon, whatever, then just put it, in, put it on the shelf and don't worry about it and let this segment stand without it. But as I was thinking about eventually doing a show on self-directed learning with AI, which is actually really exciting, and it's not doing what the AI tells you to do. It's telling the idea, the AI, how you want to be taught. I realized something. That just scared the crap out of me, that thunderclash there. Anyway, as I, as I was thinking about this and how you might set up your own learning. In other words, maybe say, tell me about this, tell me about that, then ask for clarification. And there's a bunch of stuff you can do that I don't want to get into today. I don't want to preempt my own show on this. Uh, but you can even do things like once you're done with something, say, I want you to give me a test. Uh, give me 30 questions, multiple choice. Don't make the, the wrong answers obvious. Uh, do not respond and, you know, give me one question at a time. You can literally go through and be quizzed 
on the information you think you've absorbed. And I was thinking about that, and I realized something. And, and this is something I love to do as a systems thinker with anything I can do it with, and that is find the pattern that takes the thing down to the most basic level, this or that, binary, one or zero, or you're down to only three categories or two categories, or is there really only one category? How much can we simplify this? So I looked at education, learning, schooling, call it whatever you want to, and I realized we can actually take it down. There's only two forms. There's only two forms. There is some form of mandated. Now, within each form, there's a lot of little sub-niches. But there's either mandated learning or desired learning. And, and I want to talk about, before we go on to the difference between that, the place where it might look like one is the other. So let's say that you, um, you had a career and you wanted a certification because that certification would let you make more money. And you even go out and intentionally spend your own money for a course so that you can pass a test to get the credential. In most instances, not all, but in most instances, that would still be mandated learning. And, and what I mean by that is the person is just trying to get through it. All they care about is getting the test passed and getting the credential. And they're not really worried about what they know from the experience. They, they know intrinsically, in our, especially in our day and age today, if I ever need this piece of information I need to answer the test with, I can go find the information anyway. So from K through university and all the way up through like professional certifications and all, there are certain places where people begin to really love what they do and they do pursue something that could be mandated because of desire, because they actually want to learn. But most of it is some form of mandated learning. So the only other form then is desired learning, something that you want to know. Maybe you want to know it because you need to know it because I need to learn this thing so I can save 2000 bucks. because if I do it myself, it's going to cost me nothing. But if I pay somebody to do it, it's going to cost 2000 bucks. I'm going to go to YouTube University and learn how to fix this thing in my house. That, that's desired. You actually want to know the skill for the sake of the skill or the knowledge for the sake of the knowledge. Podcasters, I think, serve a population who has developed a hunger for self-directed learning. I think if you look at the podcasts that you listen to, assuming, wow, that is some crack and thunder. Um, if you listen to other podcasts, right, that if you look at all of them, you'll probably find some common themes in them, and you'll find that there are things that you have a, a, a significant interest in, and not just hearing about, but knowing more about. And this is, the, this is part of the reason that the... The uh, news people of the world that try to go into podcasting, all the talk show people, AM radio people, their podcasts aren't really podcasts. They're just rehashes of what they do on the radio. They don't teach anything. You don't leave listening to two hours of AM radio and you haven't learned about anything except which drug to use for your impotence. Right? That's what you've learned. You've learned what... what what a home foundation repair company to call, or which air conditioning company calls the other air conditioning company ripoff artists, or whatever it is. You learn more from the commercials than you do from the content. Hunter Biden, blah, 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 blah. What did you learn? Nothing you didn't already know. You just fed your, your outrage. And most people, because they are mandated learners only, that's what they tune into. Or they watch the Kardashians or whatever reality bullshit's going on now, or they get lost in some late-night version of a soap opera or whatever it is. And I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying that's where they spend the majority of their focus. 
And then there are people who literally want to know, they're curious, they want to know more about the world. They're kind of annoying to people in power because they ask questions. They actually trust their eyes and their ears and their senses. So they notice things like, oh, I don't know, the average male today has a testosterone uh, level that's more than 300 points lower than it was 60 years ago. That There's something wrong with that, and I, I, I want to know more. Well, I, I can't fix it for everybody, but maybe I can fix it for me. That, that, that 50 years of, being, of having low-fat shoved on us has created a fatter country, we notice that. Or we just notice something like, hey, my fish tank looks a little hazy, I wonder how I can fix it. Or you just find something that you want to know more about. And it could be anything. It could be cutting meat or cooking food or mathematics. And so you go out on a quest to learn solely for the purpose of learning. Solely for the purpose of learning because you have an interest in it. And the second one, the self-directed learning, true. now understand, words get co-opted or misused. So self-directed learning now in, in the vernacular of the professional educator is the, the motivated student who completes the work on their own. Well, that's not what I mean. Because that's still mandated learning. I need to pass 7th grade to go to 8th grade. I need a good GPA in high school so I can get into college. No, wait a minute. I don't need that anymore. They'll let anybody in. I need to get through college so I can get a degree so I can go get a job serving people coffee. Right? Or I can get a job in an office as an intern and eventually maybe how to actually learn how to do something and actually have a career. But it's never about, I want to learn this stuff so that I know this stuff so I can use this stuff. And, and and part of that is because how much of it is useless? How much of it is useless? How many people who are well-paid individuals make more than a hundred thousand a year? Professionals, maybe even have a degree. If you went and pulled like four of their high school final exams, would fail three of them. They probably pass the one that's in the the discipline that they went forward in. So if they're an engineer, they would pass their science final. Maybe their math final, but they'd probably fail their English final. Definitely would fail their history final. You know, I mean, foreign language, what? French literature, I don't remember. I mean, th this is the world that we, we, we've created for ourselves, which is a disaster. I've always said humans learn what they need to learn when they need to learn it. And as long as they stick to needs, that tends to be true, but humans are learning machines. We are learning machines. We have an intrinsic curiosity and one of the real strengths in our true diversity. Diversity isn't it? my skin's a different color than your skin. or I, My last name is, is, a, is a Slavic last name and yours is a Germanic last name and somebody else is a, a Native American last name. That's not diversity. We're just humans. We're just humans. We have different color skin, different textures of hair, different heights. Etc. But in the end, we're all humans. Diversity is not in our color or our sex. Diversity is really in our interests. The diversity that can be harnessed for the betterment of mankind is in our interests. It makes sense that we would have somebody who is so into mathematics and engineering that they could design a thing that would serve us. That we would we. It's not that we're not capable of doing it ourselves. We don't want to. Maybe what we want to do is create art, or maybe what we want to do is tell stories, or maybe what we want to do is grow food. And the problem with this mindset is if you've built an industrial society 
that is predicated on about 70-80% of the people within the workforce just doing whatever the hell you want done, with no concern whatsoever for, whatsoever for what they want, a cog in the sprockets in the machine. This is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous way of thinking because then the person's going to say, well, why do I come to this place every day and put these numbers in a spreadsheet? Why do I sit here and answer this phone? Why do I come in here and tape these boxes shut? By the way, that's a job I did. Why do I come here every day and unload this truck? Why do I drive this truck? Now, people like driving trucks sometimes. Do you think most truck drivers really like driving? Or do you think it was the job they were able to get that paid better than the job that they, they had before they got it? And, and most people, what they do is they work themselves to a point where they go about as high as they think they are able to or are willing to. Meaning that, oh, I could go further than this, but I don't like this, and I really won't like that. But when you start becoming a self-directed learner, a true self-directed learner, you realize then that there is nothing beyond you. That, you, that a lot of things in the world that you think you need permission or cert, you don't need certifications, you don't need permission, you just need the knowledge. Especially when you start realizing that the greatest impact you'll have is in your backyard. Well, I don't, I don't need your permission to do this go away. And you end up with a society full of, well, for lack of a better term, uh, educated libertarians. I'm going to do my thing. If I don't know how to do a thing, I'll figure it out. If I have to pay somebody to teach me because I don't understand it, I'll do that. If I have to go work for somebody to learn a skill, like framing or drywall, I'll do that. And I'll build my own house. How much happier would humanity be if we operated this way? So I'll ask you, what do you want to learn? What don't you know that you want to learn? And I think whatever it comes down to, I'm going to learn a thing. You should be able to answer the question, why? And if the answer is because somebody says I have to, then it's maybe not something you need to pursue. Now, maybe it is. You know, if you have a, you know, a certain professional certification or something, you need to maintain it, or you need to be stamped off on something to do the next thing. I, I, I'm not totally crapping on that. I'm just saying that even that person, their historical education, going back to kindergarten, more than half of it was completely wasted. Completely wasted. And we are entering a time, and this is where AI comes back into this, it started with just the Internet, which, by the way, everything being said about AI was said about the Internet. Before Google existed, right, when you were using, you know, uh, Hotbot to find shitty content online, because it was all shitty content, people were saying this then. But it did build up to where with the collective knowledge of the world being published, anybody being able to say anything, even though governments don't like it, that the ability to do research is incredible. But now having the technology to explain something to you in multiple ways until you grasp it is huge. It's huge. And the types of tools that we're going to have for this are going to continue to grow. And that's not an advocation for everything that is AI. It's not. Or it's not a statement that, it, that governments won't use it for evil or that corporations won't use it for evil or that bad actors won't use it for evil. Of course they will. But are you going to deny yourself knowledge of things that you want to learn? Are you going to learn at a slower speed so you're not competitive? There's things that I think for a long time that if you really want to learn how to do it, the best way is going to be another human being sitting right next to you teaching you how to do it. Let's say a friction fire. There's a lot of nuance to making a friction fire. 
whether we're talking about a hand drill or a bow drill, there's a lot of nuances. But you probably could figure it out using the internet and AI. But you would probably get there a lot faster with a human. But there's a lot of other things. And what we need to be most careful with is we don't do what so many homeschoolers do. Completely re-replicate the state-based system. I'll talk about that when I do my show maybe next week on using AI for self-directed learning. It's something that I've found to be already very empowering. And I think this all comes down to, do you want a grade, a gold star, something like that? Or do you want knowledge? And so all this idea that, will it only be used to cheat? Why? Why would there be such a predisposition that most people that use AI for, for educational purposes would use it to cheat? Maybe the problem isn't that you can cheat. Maybe the problem is a system that is so not valued by the student that they're not seeking knowledge, just a grade. That's my thoughts. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys you can help support this show by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And Prime Days are coming, so just remember there's some good deals that come out during that. Today's item of the day I'll go real quick on because the whole show was on it yesterday. The Easy Fermenter Wide Mouth Lids. For your ball jars, turn any ball jar with a wide mouth, which is the only kind you should buy, by the way, uh, into a fermentation vessel for making lacto-fermented ferments. I love these things. They're great. I think you'll love them if you try them, too. I got a ton of uh, orders came in yesterday for them. And the other thing was I got a ton of great feedback, even before anybody touched them. Just like, I didn't know these exist. These are awesome. And I got quite a bit of feedback from people. I've been using these. They're great. I'm glad you found them. So anyway, if you are interested in those, you can find them on the website. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Look right below the show notes for this episode or in the show notes for this episode down in the resources, and you'll find them. Or the best thing you can do for yourself to make sure you don't miss out on anything. Because everything that I've reviewed and recommend, I run active price watches on. And when they're on sale, like these are right now, these are on sale right now for like 21% off. When there's a sale, I tend to bring that product back around. And I always announce it in the email, the Daily Mail, on Telegram and social media. To get on the Daily Mail, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on, you guessed it, Daily Mail. Name and email address. That's all that I need. Your data is safe with me. If I have to say that after 15 years, I don't, must be, you must be new around here. I will not give away your information to anyone ever, Infinity, because my relationships with you, your relationships not with somebody else. That's not, it wouldn't be right for me, and it's not a good business practice. Selling off your customer list to your competitors is stupid, so don't do that. So I don't do that because it's wrong and it's stupid, and I try not to do either of those. With that, I hope you have a great weekend. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back on Monday with a new one. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution.